welcome to a Minor Detail Podcast. My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host. I am an independent journalist and a reporter. I cover Maryland politics and news in the state of Maryland. I've developed a reputation for being a disruptor. I call it as I see it. If you're on the political right, you might loathe me. And if you're on the left, you're going to hold me in equal contempt. I am straight down the middle. I'm exhausted with extreme partisans, I loathe incivility, and I'm ready to get back to the basics. This podcast is about truth. My job is to get to the bottom of every story, highlighting every small detail and shedding light on the inside of Maryland politics. This is episode 268 on Wednesday, May the 20th, 2020. Former Baltimore City Mayor Sheila Dixon joined the show. This conversation begins now. Mayor Dixon, welcome for the first time to the podcast. I'm glad we could set this up, and I appreciate you coming on. It's been a race, man. You are you're running strong. You're the polls say that you are you're tied. You're ready to go. You've accomplished quite a number of firsts in your career. You served as the 48th mayor of Baltimore City. You were sworn in when Martin O'Malley became governor of Maryland, and you were the former president of the Baltimore City Council. And you're the first African-American woman to serve as president of the city council. And, of course, you have the distinction of serving as the first female mayor of Baltimore. Quite a record. Quite a, a list of accomplishments there. Born in West Baltimore, your father, Philip, he was a car salesman. Your mom, uh, Winona, she was a community activist, active in church, political causes, and a member of local community groups. Mayor Dixon, was it your mom who inspired you to to get your kickstart in politics? Well, it was a combination of my mother, who was very active with women issues and very involved with the Girl Scouts and PTA and just a whole host of issues that affect us as a community. Um, And then also, um, I guess the other thing that influenced me was when I and was teaching school um, at Stuart Hill Elementary School in Union Square at that time, they called that area Pigtown. And just the challenges that I saw teachers were dealing with um, really kind of inspired me to want to make changes policy-wise as far as education and making an impact in our young people's lives. And so that was kind of the beginning. And then I was asked by former um, delegate, the late delegate Pete Rollins to run on his ticket with the um, Democratic State Central Committee. Um, I was a delegate to the convention where Jesse Jackson went, ran for president, and that was a very exciting. That's kind of really took off from there, getting more involved in politics. Oh, well, that was what, 88, I believe. 80, 80, no, it was 80, was it 86, 87? I'm trying to think the George H.W. Bush was elected in 1988 to the presidency. And I believe Jesse Jackson ran a couple of times. But uh, now I'm trying to rack my brain for political history. So. Yeah. Well, you know, you can go- you can Google it. I can then. Google it. <laughs> you you attended Baltimore City Public Schools. You graduated from Northwestern High School, and you and my wife share a college alma mater in Towson University. Uh, you have a master's degree from the world famous John Hop- Johns Hopkins University, and 
you know, Mayor, you've had a, you've had an interesting, interesting career as mayor of Baltimore City, as a former uh, president of the city council. You worked as an elementary school teacher and you were a, an adult education instructor with Head Start. Uh, with the Head Start program, you worked uh, for 17 years as an international trade specialist with the Maryland Department of Business and Economic Development. And in 1987, you won a seat on the Baltimore City Council representing the 4th Council District, where you served for 12 years. And Mayor, I have to ask you, for posterity's sake, you got to retell that story when you waved your shoe <laughs> at the uh, at the person, and you said you've been running this thing for twenty years. Now the shoe's on the other foot. Well, sort of. That's sort of correct and incorrect. Okay. First of all, when I came onto the council, um, African Americans were in the minority, and even though um, we re represented the majority of the city, and so the um, Black caucus members of the members of the city council. This was during redistricting, and redistricting will be happening really soon, um, based on the census. Every time there's a ten-year census, you go through a redistricting based on population, and so our objective was to increase African American representation across the city in certain districts. The third district, which African American middle class were moving into, that's well at that time it was the third district. Um, in Northeast Baltimore, over by Morgan and that whole area, as well as in the sixth district at that time, which is like Cherry Hill, Westport, Pigtown. <clears throat> and so when you talk about losing power, anybody and going through a redistricting process, people get really hot and upset. Mm. And actually I was defending, I mean, it got very nasty where to the point where my colleagues were calling each other some very derogatory names. And I was about to take the shoe off. I was actually defending Carl Stokes. Hmm. And, you know, cause you don't talk about people's mothers, right? No, no, you and don't. I was about to take the shoe off and hit one of my colleagues. Oof. And of course the camera was on me and I started banging it on the table. So that's how I became um, the shoes on the other foot. I, I like it. It wasn't meant racially as far as being um, radical or anti-white. It was really about how do we create a diverse city um, and do it in a way where there's equity. And, and how do you do it? But, and by having representation that look like um, people within our communities. But um, so, so yeah, that's kind of the real story on that. Well, it's a good story. And it's an incident that said some people said, oh, well, she's divisive. But to me, that showed me that showed me that you meant business, that you were ready to take on these challenges and that you were going to step up and be a leader and your community. And that's what you did. I want to talk about your record as mayor. Mayor Dixon, uh, Baltimore City mayoral race. I think this year it's you. This is such a unique race, and you're confined mostly, I assume, to your home. Or I've seen you out doing some exercising, and that's cool because we all need some more exercise during this time. And you've been somewhat limited in your efforts to campaign face to face because of the coronavirus and the the state lockdown. You're known as a retail politician. You like to get out, shake hands, look people in the eye talk to them and tell them exactly where you stand. Has this effort, um, or rather has the this moment, the coronavirus, tell me about those limitations. What, what have you been doing to campaign? 
So we have increased our phone banking where we're calling voters on a regular basis between um, Zoom meetings and events that um, communities are now doing. I participate in calling voters, asking them how they're doing, how they're making out, you know, um, based on what's going on, if it's something that we can do to help them. Um, answering a lot of calls from voters in reference to challenges that they have as uh, unemployment, trying to file for unemployment, a lot of issues. Um, individuals who have um, young, their family members incarcerated and they can't get answers. So constituent service has been huge. And then on the weekends, we do um, food drives wow. in different parts of the city, you know, because, you know, people have to select between paying their rent and buying groceries. So we've taken our own money and we've gone in different parts of the city every weekend and we've done food drives. So you get a chance to talk to people then, you know, of course you keep your social distance, you keep your mask on, gloves on. Um, but so, so we've been doing those kind of things as well. Um, and so those are the main things. Of course, we participate in a lot of candidate forums and debates and we host on twice a week, it's called Merrill Monday and Thursday, where we talk about issues as relates to coronavirus, as relates to business and getting access to opportunities. We have guests that come on. So we've been doing a lot of those and those have been really successful. Wow. So Mayor Dixon, given the, the circumstances and the limitations of campaigning and because of the lockdown and businesses, we've heard a lot about how the recovery will work, how it's going to happen. And I've heard from folks in, let's say, Little Italy, Sergio Vital, for example, has mm -hmm. been vocal. That's been a big issue on the minds of restaurants and restaurant owners in, in the city of Baltimore. What's your response to them? How would you address that when you become, if, if you were elected to, uh, to reelected as mayor? So one of the things that we're going to have to look at is, one, we have to make sure that we have an accurate count and understand the um, conditions of people who have coronavirus and who don't. And so we have to take the guidance of our medical experts, number one. Number two, we have to put systems in place in order to try to help businesses to get back up and running in a way that's going to be safe for them as well as their um, customers who are coming in. And so I'll sit down and meet with, um, I had a conversation with a restaurant owner who had a great idea um, in taking some of the tables, since they have to limit how many tables within the restaurant, is that the city look at spaces around with those where the restaurants are located, maybe public spaces, and allow some outdoor seating that's spaced out. And, and so that might be a way to help to recover, not charge permit fees for doing the outspace, but allowing them to come up with some different designs in certain communities. In other communities, we might have to look at what other things are going on in other cities. Um, one day on national news, I noticed, I think it was somewhere in Florida where restaurants were really challenged and they reached out to many of their customers. And what they did was each day, a different restaurant um, did an initiative where they had drive-bys where people came by, made a commitment. Like there are certain restaurants I love in Little Italy. And so, you know, it's really sitting down with those businesses as well as our health experts and coming up with a system 
try to help them to get as whole as possible. I mean, we got to be creative in doing this, but we have to be safe and healthy in doing it as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And yesterday, the Comptroller of Maryland, Peter Francho, and his team, they released a plan called Take It Outside, where they're encouraging the governor to relax some restrictions on, as you said, allowing restaurants to seat people outside. And, of course, Little Italy those streets are narrow. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, right, you, right. you go in front of Sabatino's or in front of Vaccaro's, uh, out, out of, there's not a whole lot of space out there unless you close the streets. And every year we go to the, uh, the annual, uh, Italian festival, uh, in around October. And it's just a not hold. It's not a lot of space. So I'm hoping That's that. Deals, yeah. Yeah. Now, what you're saying. So, so one of the things that maybe you know um, initially maybe between now and the summer at least as we begin to open up um, testing for all citizens like they're doing the state is doing this weekend at Timonium Fair that way you can get a better handle on who potentially could be carrying it and who not and then maybe in Little Italy's case maybe we could start off by you know. The, uh, the restaurants contacting their um, patrons and saying, hey, Monday will be Sabatino's day mm. where come on down, drive through, we'll block off, we'll have some traffic control people there, you know, call in your orders. The next day we could do this. Yeah, I know what you mean. It is tight there. Or, or maybe have certain restaurants open up certain days of the week and then a couple of them open up another day, couple of days of the week. And this the coronavirus, of course, it stresses uh, the city, the city leadership to think creatively. That's something that we're going to have to come up with as a as a state uh, to figure out how can we address these problems with minimizing the impact on commerce, on economic activity. Because, of course, as mayor and as a someone who understands business development, you want jobs. You want you want to make sure those jobs are available in the city. You want people coming in and shopping and uh, frequenting the the Inner Harbor and all kinds of places around the city. Coming to Orioles games, but we don't know if that's going to happen this summer. I hope it does, but I... yeah, I hope it does too. And I hope we can do it in a way where um, you know we can make people feel confident and safe and know that you know we have systems in place that can assure that. Because keep in mind, despite all of that, we still um, have a surge that people don't necessarily now even want to come into the city because of crime. Yeah. And we really got to get a handle on that. Yeah. We really got a handle on what's going to happen with our young people this summer. Because I haven't heard anything about youth works and if the, if the young people are going to work because school will be out. Um, in some cases, school is out for kids because I've seen them all week out you know, doing squeegeeing and things. And I'm like, well, why aren't they at home in class? You know, so there are other challenges we got to deal with as well to address this. Uh, Mayor Dixon, you're a former educator. You understand the education system and you know how difficult it is to be a teacher at this time, especially at this time when we're trying to, even as parents, we have two young ones in Montgomery County Public Schools and it's it's a challenge day to day. Virtual learning has worked some places, but my concern is, is that in places like Baltimore City, where there's uh, lower income students, how's that going to work? I mean, it, are, are, what's going to happen with our education system throughout uh, this coronavirus lockdown? Well, I know that um, a number of individuals 
didn't like some ideas that I had. Um, and that is one, we as a city, Detroit has done this. They took $23 million and they went and purchased enough um, internet access as well as tablets and, and laptops to assist those challenging areas. And the city might need to step up and do that. But we might also have to take our learning experience throughout the entire summer. Because I also believe and feel that our kids have fallen behind. If you don't live in a structured environment at home and your parents or guardians are really on top of this, despite the fact that many of them are, are, are challenged and frustrated, because keep in mind, everybody, you know, you want to teach your children and you want to guide them, but everybody doesn't necessarily have all the skills needed in order to address some of the classes that young people have today. And so you need the structure, you need to be able to have access to your teachers. And I don't think we should have had a system in place before all of this happened, to be honest with you, just based on the individual divide and the technology of what we deal with today. You know, we should have systems in place where when this happened, or if it's a snow day, we can use that, we could use Zoom, we could use other uh, mechanism, uh, micro web and other systems already have them in place. So unfortunately, we can't, we're behind the eight board and we eight ball and we need to catch up and make sure that we get prepared between now and the summer. So in September, we know and make sure that each child is prepared and ready to learn. You mentioned earlier the squeegee kids. And when I go in the city, a lot of times we'll be at stoplights. And personally, I love it because my car, always, it's always dirty and it needs to be washed. We've heard some controversy around this that sometimes the squeegee kids, it seems like they're people who are opposed to that. And then we've heard some mayoral candidates talk about their plans. What's your what's your position on that? So I don't think they need to be out there on the um, in the street um, making money that way. I do understand. And a lot of them I pulled on my my window and I asked them multiple questions. How old are you? Are you in school? If you're not in school, do you really want to get a job? And if so, I would give them my card because I work with contractors. And several of them, I've helped to get jobs working with some of the contractors. And they, um, and for example, one of the companies hired two of the squeegee kids, young men, and said, hey, you work six months straight. I will pay for you to get your CDL license so that you can be a part of this crew. So we've got to look at other options. It's just like panhandling. It's just, you know, some of the panhandling, it, it's, it's massive now. It's more now than even before. And a lot of that is because of drug addiction, you know, or young people because they want, they want, they need money, you know, but we got to look at alternatives for them. That's just not the way to live a life. And when they're out there, all of them are not disrespectful, you know, I've recently I saw them with masks on and they were respectful, you know, coming up to your windows. But there are other options and there are better ways in order to thrive so that they could live a productive life. And we've got to focus on putting a lot more energy into that area. Yeah, I've I've experienced them and I I haven't had a negative experience at all. And you're right. They are respectful. They'll, they, most of the time they will ask and uh, roll down your you know, I've given them tips and said, thank you. And it's, you know, and I get it. They need jobs or if they 
hopefully they can, if they're supposed to be in school, they can get back there. A lot of circumstances around that. And I would always say, reserve your judgment before you, you know, talk to these people. Just talk to them. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. Cause some of them, I put, when sometimes I'll see them and they come over to my window and I'm like, wait a minute, look at your equipment. Your stuff is dirty. How can you wash my window like that? You know, or, or if they wash the window and it's smeared, I'm like, ah, oh, no, 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 you got to do a little better job. If you're going to, you know, really do this, you got to get this together. Yeah. But, um, but, and then, and, you know, but I do, I, I talk to them, you know, I talk to them cause I'm, I want to encourage them that there are other options. Yeah. You know? Now, you know, Mayor, this, the tone of this race, it has come down to records, experience, and character. I want to touch on the former two items now, and then we'll discuss uh, life experience and, and how they shaped you. But let's look at the facts of your record as mayor of Baltimore. You're running on a basic platform, competence, competence, that you are the competent choice to come in to a city that has some issues but incredible promise, and then you can help with an administration in place, clean up the city. And during your tenure as mayor, let's look at the facts. The homicide rate, it dropped for the first time in 30 years. Why is that, Mayor? What did you do specifically to contribute to that drop? We reversed what Mayor O'Malley put in place. I know he had set goals of, we're gonna drop it by 200 numbers. But zero tolerance and locking up everybody because somebody standing on the corner with an open bottle um, drinking is not the route to go. Locking our way through this is not. But focusing on, one, I hired within the police department. Two, we came up with a strategy and plan that we could um, measure to look for results. Focus on the violent offenders because we know who the violent offenders are, you know, creating a gun registry modeled after New York under Mayor Bloomberg, where we registered individuals who had illegal guns, but we not only registered them, we went and visited them. We went to visit them with their parole and probation and other support services to find out what they were doing. If they weren't doing anything, we gave them some, um, some plans or some, some ideas of things to do in order to, to, to look at other options. You know, we created safe streets, which we work with, um, former gang members who could go into certain communities and kind of um, eliminate some of the um, issues that are going on before the police even had to do their job. And we tracked that. We got our officers to understand they knew the plan. So our officers from the bottom up knew the plan. We also went to a more community policing. You know, there's a trust factor in the city and it's gotten worse um, ever since Freddie Gray's incident. So we got our officers out walking the beat, talking to individuals. We did an aggressive campaign to recruit officers. We got officers that want to be there, you know, because we involved them and engaged them. So we were able to retain officers as well as we recruited. And then we had the academy that we created. And at Walbrook High School, it was the police, it was the public safety academy for young people in high school who wanted to pursue a career in public safety or fire, or paramedics. So we were working on grooming young people from Baltimore City to actually get engaged and be involved in it. And then last but not least, which is so important, and most candidates are not talking about, we had the Criminal Coordinating Council, you know, where we had the state's attorney, Pat Jessamy at the time, the police commissioner, 
the, the courts, parole probation, all the public safety entities were at the table. And we were looking at each other, looking at the numbers and looking at and discussing what was wrong in the police department, why we couldn't get convictions, what was going on at the state's attorney's office, et cetera, et cetera. And we faced each other and said, how are we, what are our weaknesses? What are our strengths? How are we going to deal with this? Let's put aside egos and the politics. What, let's do our jobs. And, and that has not happened in a long time, you know, despite all the crime plans that are out there. You know, the truth be told, everybody's going in their own direction and we can't function like that. We should be so past this. We shouldn't be talking about being the most violent city in America. And that 60% of our population in the city um, are concerned about crime. You know, it should be 65% of our population are concerned about the education of our children and jobs and economic development. And so my goal is to go back, create the kind of system, work within um, the structure with our police department, our state's attorney's office, et cetera, to really sit folks down and really put the fire under each of our feet. Because five years from now, we should not be discussing the same issues that we're talking about now. Well, you increase police patrols during your administration and your administration. You cracked down on the possession of illegal guns. You secured federal and state funds for crime fighting programs, though your opponents in this race say that crime has risen during your time as mayor and that you did not pay enough attention to crime. What is your response to that? Well, the fact speaks for itself. And those that are saying that have no clue about the fact that we were reducing it. And on top of it, our same crime plan that we put in place, and I'm not just talking about um, murders, I'm talking about quality of life crimes as it relates to burglaries, as it relates to assaults. All of these had gone down because in some communities, it's all about the quality of life. But the bottom line is it went down even to the point where the ball was passed to Stephanie Rollins Blake in her first two years under that same plan, it still was going down. But the but the problem is once Fred Bilfeld and his team was removed from the crime process and a new commissioner came in, everything just fell to the wayside. The gun task force went out of control, no supervision, you know, um, no consistency. And then what do we have? End up having five, six police commissioners sent. We need consistency. And the thing about it is we've got to stop thinking that because somebody puts a system in place and it's working, you assess it, you build on it. You don't throw it away because it's somebody else's idea. And that's part of the, the problem that we have here in Baltimore. It's like we create systems and infrastructures and put them in place instead of people building on them because it wasn't their idea. Oh, I'm throwing that away. That wasn't my idea. I don't want to I'm not going to deal with her idea. But the bottom line is, ultimately, whoever's there, they're going to get the credit for it. Yeah. Your predecessor, whom you mentioned earlier, Martin O'Malley, when he was mayor, he promoted the zero tolerance crime fighting policies. And he instructed Baltimore City police officers to make arrests on offenses such as loitering. And you were criticized in your first mayoral run in 2017 for pulling 500 police officers off the streets during what was an increase in crime. But since Mayor O'Malley became Governor O'Malley and then went on to bigger endeavors, his record has been severely criticized. And some believe that Martin O'Malley's crime plan led to 
additional fissures between police officers and the community. Can you address that and talk about how your plan would be different? And then let's talk about that, the community policing model and effect, because I think it's a good one. So, of course, um, when you arrest people, when you car stop people for whatever, driving black or whatever is going on, that in itself across this country has caused a distrust in the police department. And we have to take, first of all, I believe in a holistic approach and most things that I try to get involved in and I try to look at, because you have to look at preventive things that are going on as well. You know, we have to look at what's going on in the classroom, what's going on in our neighborhoods, what's going on as relates to unemployment, why we have this obsessed um, with this drug trade. You know, 60 years ago, the drug trade was heroin. We went from heroin to um, getting out of control, even before O'Malley. This was between Schaefer into Schmoke when it went when we went into crack and then now opium. You know, when are we going to focus on preventing? When are we going to break these cycles of generations, you know, of poverty? You know, it's like being in public housing. That was supposed to be temporary. Now you have second and third generations. And so we have to roll up our sleeves. We have to really work with our nonprofits and other institutions to really begin to put structures in place that are going to address these kind of ills while we deal with providing what government needs to do, public safety, education, picking up your trash, cleaning up the city, making sure your roads are, are straight. You know, all of those factors still play a part. You know, we can we can look at this um, um, and try to solve all of these problems together, but city government has a responsibility with a whole host of a menu um, that we have to now work collectively with other groups to do as well. Mayor, when, uh, when you were Baltimore City Council president and O'Malley was mayor, did you express concerns about some of his policies that ultimately led to significant criticism um, in the last couple of years that the arrest virtually was the arrest everybody policy. Did you talk to him about that at that time and say, look, these could be some serious unintended ill consequences? Always the council as a whole, myself as city council president, always talked to Martin O'Malley, the mayor about that. You know, we try to use our legislative because as a, as a legislator, you have to kind of use that process in order to make your point across, um, particularly as it relates to budget and at budget times or when supplements would come into the council for additional funding into police. You know, we had to strategically hold money back and, and express our concerns through that mechanism. So there are many, many ways that we try to make that point to Martin. Part of the <clears throat> challenge is that people who make promises when they run for public office and they're not realistic is when you put a number and says, I'm going to get the crime down to uh, 100 murders, hmm. you know, one murder is too many, you know, and then the other piece is when you're in the position that you're in, be that job, stop looking at the next job ahead of you because that, you know, I remember him telling me when he became governor, and we went to um, single stream recycling and I did a whole host of other things. He was like, how did you do this in six months? And I try to get my team to do this in two years. I said, because I'm focused on being mayor. I was focused on being city council president. 
Well, you know, I wasn't focused on the next job. Well, it, the the criticism is certainly valid, considering that in the last couple of years of the go- of the governor's term, he was looking at president. So I I don't know what kind of president he would have been, but even still, that's a good point. Some of your opponents have made some uh, I, promises. Let's so, so to speak about what they want to accomplish in their first terms and are they realistic promises i mean can we get the murders down to that number i mean how how would that work well you know um a number of the uh, my opponents or the candidates that are running have never been in city government or worked in city government and have no clue and all they can go by is how they think things should go but you know for me working, serving in government as city as mayor during a recession. Now this recession that we're about to go in is three times the recession that I had. I had very little money under my administration to be able to do all that we did, but we went after federal funds, do the stimulus. We went to the state, you know, we worked through this process because believe me, if I had the money that, that the several count mayors have had in the last several years, and the ideas and plans that I had at that time, I could have accomplished them in in less time, but we were able to do more with less. Moving forward, we're gonna have to tighten up our budget. We're gonna have to look at where waste is. We have to do auditing, we have to streamline. Some people are gonna have to get in there and just learn how city government works. It's gonna take a year or two. (laughs) We don't have that time. Well, I know that you know city government inside and out for, having worked in it for many years, you understand the administration, you understand the the politics, the inside politics in mayor. One of the criticisms that we hear uh, aimed at city politics in general is that people say, oh, well, the Democrats have been in office for X, all these amount of years. But I never really sensed that it's it's a Democrat versus Republican issue. I've never said, well, because so-and-so is a Democrat, therefore, there, it's going to be bad. I, I've never gotten that sense. I think there's some internal managerial problems that affect how local government works. Would you agree? I would totally agree. And even being a Democrat, we have progressives, we have conservative, we have liberals. And it's really about management. It's really about understand, understanding structures and systems. And I keep going back to that. See, and it's also being able to juggle multiple things at one time. And I think that's part of what the challenge is that the current mayor has, is that the fact that he was a city council president for a long time, but that's one thing. But when you become mayor, you have to deal with multiple things at one time. And this does not mean, you know, I mean, you can't just focus on just crime. You've got to focus on crime. You've got to focus on making sure that the trash is being picked up. You have to focus on you know, multiple issues at one time. And some people can't handle multiple issues at one time. You know, it's like being a parent and having a child and the fact that you've got it and you work a full-time job. You know, there are things that you have to do as relates to your child. You can't just throw the child to the side. You have to do all these things at one time. And I think that's one of the gifts that I have, that I'm able to do that, but also bring the right talented people to the table to be a part of the team because the mayor can't do it all. And one of the things that I subscribe to is when people say, you know, some of my opponents say, you know, I'm not a politician. 
well, I'm not a politician, I'm a public servant. And being that public servant and understanding city government and being able to attract the right people to help me and remove the politics, because that's the other challenge we face. People want to make things so political. You know, you don't make a decision based on who it's going to benefit if it's not going to benefit the citizens of Baltimore. Wow. You know, it's not about you. It's about them. Yeah. I want to talk to you. You've you've apologized constantly for things in the past. And of course, character is invariably on the ballot for any candidate who seeks a public office. And look, Mayor, I don't want to be the 168th journalist to ask you to respond to what is already known, has been adjudicated, debated and deliberated over. But instead, Mayor, I'm interested instead today to talk a little bit about redemption. You know, in my 20s, I've made some critical errors in judgment. I'm 34 years old. I'm a husband, father, employed, gainfully, thank God. And I've walked the path of shame and embarrassment and the heartache of that and feeling sometimes lost and empty. And you've you've walked that in a much bigger way than I have, and you've walked it in a much more public way. But I believe that we, as human beings, we want to give second chances. We want to offer redemption. And most of all, we want to see the best in somebody. Have you forgiven yourself and made peace with your past? I have forgiven myself and made peace with myself. And it took a lot and it took a process for me to go through. I mean, I had to, because of the disappointment in my God and myself and my family and the people that um, support me and the citizens, you know, I had to, you know, take time and, and get mental health counseling yeah. to help me through this process. I mean, I went through a whole transformation for myself so that I knew that I could be uh, um, the person that I know that I am. And a lot of people don't know all the ins and outs that took place, but, you know, people have their perceptions and I know I have to deal with that. And I know that jumping back into this race you know, I have to work three times hard to be transparent, to be open and honest. And that's what I have committed myself to. Wow. But I do know that, um, yes, I have. Oh, are there times when people make statements or on social media, you know, tries to, to beat you down and you want to get on it and give them the real facts? But, you know, I just sit back and I try to be at peace with myself and with my God. Yeah, I'm not interested in that. And I think that people who are human beings who have made mistakes, because we're all, we all have made mistakes and really we shouldn't judge, but judge someone about how they have learned from that error and how they have come back and what they've done with their life to show the decency in and who they are and helping people understand and you've you've been through that you've helped under you've helped people understand your personal trials and tribulations and how it has made you stronger how it has helped you become a better person and if elected mayor um again uh i know that you're, you 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 will struggle not only with the the economic recovery but you're still going to get those hits you're still going to get the hits by the press and of course that's their job sometimes and you're still going to be called into question from your opponents in the last couple of weeks. But look, you know, these are we're all human beings. We all err sometimes. And it's just how we show that redemption and how we show the courage to come back and do better. And, uh, you know, you've apologized. I think, you know, I think we're at the point where it's time to move on. I really do. And well, I appreciate that. And, and I agree. Now, everybody agrees with that. But I also believe that it also shows that 
you can be that example for somebody else who wants to change their life around and get a second chance. Yeah. And that's what it's about being that example. I've given, you know, as, as someone in business, I've, I've given people plenty of chances to be successful and, uh, you know, your, your name's on the ballot. We'll see what happens in this race, but I think that it's time that we put this, obviously it's an issue. It can, it should be debated. Character is a huge issue, but you're, you're taking hits, but I've, I've talked to some of your opponents and some of their issues are on the ballot. And I think you've veered away from those issues. You've tried to refocus the conversation on what is best for Baltimore. And yes, character is important. It defines how you will respond in office. It sets you up for success or failure. But today, we are mo- I'm most interested to see this great, vibrant city get back on track. We I all, am too. We all are. And so I want to talk a little bit about economic recovery. You have, you've talked about this in different forums and discussions and Zoom discussions. Can you lay out the, the basics of your plan? How do we inspire new businesses to set up and set up shop in Baltimore? How do we get commerce flowing? So first I would create a Baltimore business or economic recovery team. And in that team, it won't be made up of a whole lot of uh, bureaucrats. It will be made up of individuals from the business community, small, medium, large business community. And we will sit down and we will look at ways to create one new emerging economies or industries because there are going to be a number of restaurants and the possibility a number of hotels that might end up closing down. So how do we set up a plan to retrain people along with um, those individuals who um, right now have no training and based on the um, construction industry, IT, health industry, you know, so really create a recovery team and then begin to then, once we come up with a list of things that we need to do, look at city government, streamline our process so that we can continue to build on um, business because one of the criticisms that I hear from a number of people in the private sector is that they steer away from doing business with the city or wanting to do anything with the city because of how long the process takes. So we've got to go in each of our agencies and sit down with um, the key people to, to look at our permit process, see what we need to do so that we can provide some incentives there look at um, financing that we can get from the federal government as well as BBC to provide grants and loans, particularly micro loans for companies. You know, last 10 years, that's what I've been doing, working with uh, minority companies. And one of the challenges is access to capital, access to opportunities. You know, we're, we're going to need to break down as city government, some of our major contracts so that we can allow smaller companies. I meet with engineering companies, architectural firms on a regular basis doing this process. And the one thing they keep saying is payment is very slow and that they can't compete with the larger companies. So we need to look at how we can lead by example by breaking down some of those contracts to to allow those medium companies to get access and those small companies to get access to projects that we have to continue to build on as it relates to our infrastructure. So there are a whole host of things that through this recovery team that could be significant. Um, and helping us to um, 
to move this forward. One of your opponents, uh, T.J. Smith, has talked <laughs> about waste, fraud, and abuse inside of city government, and he's he's talked about uh, the culture of corruption inside of Baltimore, inside of the Baltimore Police Department. Do you do you see that culture that exists there? I mean, what what are those issues? What are the waste, fraud, and abuse inside of city government? So. One of the things that I think my opponent doesn't really understand is that when the inspector general discloses certain incidents that happen within city government, that they think that's a blanket, that that the entire city government is fraud and abuse. We have to do regular audits. We have to um, retain and work on regular assessments of what's going on in our agencies. We have to look at duplications within our agencies. We have to begin to, you know, really talk to the frontline people in a lot of ways to get them to understand that when we come out of this pandemic, things are not going to be the way that they were. And we're going to tighten up our belts. And so we have to assess in every department where there is potential waste, what we can do to streamline um, things in our agencies and where there's duplications. And people are going to have to work harder for less, you know, as relates to the police department. You know, we have to look at right now, it's the largest budget item that we have in city government. And, but we're not getting the results that we need. So we need to reassess what's going on and who's keeping track of the money of overtime. Well, overtime probably now has to do with not having enough officers. So here's the question, or this is what I put in my recovery plan. How can we maximize working with our partners, utilizing the school police, who will patrol those areas in those communities around the school, utilizing and working with the state, with the MTA police, and have them patrol and be in the presence in the areas where we have buses and light rail and subways while we build up our police. Because keep in mind, we still have the consent decree that we have to address, and that's part of um, the new system that we're under. And so looking at that consent decree, but also looking at those consultants that we're paying millions of dollars, do we need to have all those consultants to accomplish this consent decree? And could we um, save money in that respect? And then of course, a big piece in the police department moving forward, we have to resolve this 10 year lawsuit of the pension and retirement for our police officers. That's the number one thing that most officers who either have left or who want or are about to leave want to get resolved. That has to be num- the number one thing we do on day two of going into public office. Well, what what is that issue? And for anybody who's outside of the city of Baltimore, or hasn't been following the Baltimore Sun or other media outlets, can you break that down? What does that mean? So my, um, so Stephanie Rollins Blake implemented a new pension plan um, back when I left office where right now an officer can retire in 20 years and there's a certain formula based on your 20 years that you will receive in your pension. She changed it to 25 or 23 years. Um, And so the the FOP sued the city um, versus, um, versus grandfathering in any new police. So if you already there and you signed a contract for 20 years, now you can't retire. You have to wait for 23 years versus anybody coming in new, 
they would then have to meet the 20 year retirement. And so there's a lawsuit where millions of dollars are being spent because it hasn't been resolved. Do we go back and give those officers who spent 20 years what we said we, you were gonna get in 20 years or do they have to work 23 to 25 years in order to get what they should have gotten at their 20 year timeline? Okay, um, Mayor, that's, I, a big, I, that's a, it's a big issue. And another thing is that I remember when about five years ago, yeah, five years ago, uh, when the situation happened with Freddie Gray, and it was right around this time of the year in, in late April. And I remember seeing you down in the crowd talking to people right by that CVS. What was that experience like for you? Well, for me, the experience, I was disappointed, one, because it took a lot for us to get to CVS to come into that community. Other development was going on in that community. We had senior buildings that were being developed. And for me, it was like, how can I reach some of these individuals to get them to understand that being destructive and tearing down this area is only gonna hurt them in the long run. And so to allow the process to work its way out, if the curfew, if we have a curfew, respect the curfew, understand that yes, you're frustrated, you're upset, you're hurt about what's happened. You know, was, you know, we don't know everything um, about what took place with Freddie Gray and the police officers, but don't just blanketly feel that every officer um, is corrupt or wants to destroy the city because we have great officers as well as bad apples and that's in anything that we do. So I really wanted to go down and get people to just listen to me, um, try to respect and hear them out and, and try to calm things down as much as possible as well as work, we did some, um, some food drives in the area as well, and then some other e events that were going on, just to get people to, to calm down. Well, I, I remember that indelible moment and in seeing you there, and I also remember a lot the late Elijah Cummings walking through the streets of Baltimore, uh, trying to, as you said, calm people down, and losing Elijah Cummings last year, it, it had to be tough. Do you wanna say a few words about him? You know, um, um, Congressman Elijah Cummins and I have worked together for a long time. Um, he was a phenomenal congressperson. Uh, I remember on Mondays is when they had kind of like free time during the day where you could go and sit down and meet. You know, I would go down as mayor and meet, giving him updates or go over to Washington, D.C. Even when I was in, out of public office, I would go and meet regularly with him as relates to the companies that I work with and issues that impact our community. Um, and so being able to pick up the phone and call him and, and share concerns of thoughts that I had and vice versa, you know, if he would call me to get feedback about something that was going on um, would be missed. Um, you know, I guess right now the benefit is that Kwaisin Fume, because he's one of the reasons that I ended up coming on the city council because he had recommended me for his seat, even though I didn't get it. I ended up running for it, but we had that same kind of relationship where he understands my love and commitment to the city. And I know that, you know, as he get acclimated into um, back into his old seat, you know, we will, he will be getting calls on a regular basis along with our other representation about resources that would be needed for the city. I couldn't imagine going to Congress at this moment in history. It has to be. 
I just, Washington is, I think it's a bigger mess than we think it is. And I just, I couldn't imagine being down there. And my hat is off to anybody who wants to run and wants that job. But I had the opportunity to interview uh, Congressman Infume, and he seems to have a, a firm grasp of the issues, a city that he dearly loves, uh, his district between Baltimore, Baltimore City, and, and Howard County. And I'm hoping that, uh, so that he'll be able to, to carry out the remainder of Elijah's term. And no matter who is elected in November, uh, I, I just know that Baltimore, they need some help. And I have to tell you, watching from the outside last summer, I didn't think that it was fair, Mayor, when the President of the United States called Baltimore City a rat and rodent infested, uh, I don't know, he used some term. And I just thought that that was really unfair for someone who was doing that, saying these things under intellectual dishonesty, as I I can assume, uh, just because Elijah was set to investigate him. I didn't think that was helpful to a city at that moment. No, well, you have to understand the president we have currently have, he has issues. It's very clear. But I mean, I, you, I've never heard a president ever say anything like that. But, you know, the bottom line is we have areas in our city that is dirty and we got to do everything we can to clean it up because I was at a cleanup last weekend. And if I show you the pictures, it was disgusting. I was so frustrated and upset. And this group of this guy who got out of prison, he's now wanting to train individuals in that community. He pulled together. These people did it on a volunteer basis. He, they do it every week and they're out there cleaning up. And we, the city, as well as people who want to dump in those businesses in those areas, have to do a better job. Yeah. Uh, where I was at in Park Heights off of um, Belvedere last Saturday, it was disgusting. And it was very um, disheartening because people were out there trying to take care of their yards and their, their neighborhood and to see that around them. It's just unacceptable. And you're you're backing Joe Biden for president, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty easy one. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, the only one to back. That well, yeah. That's uh, right now. Yeah. Uh, so, Mayor, the, your website is DixonForBaltimore.com. I'm looking at it now. It tells you an about section. I mean, hell, you even released several years of your tax returns, um, and I wouldn't be oh, able to. I wouldn't be able to find my tax returns. No, I I know where they are. I just they're tucked away somewhere. I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, five to seven years of. But uh, yeah, so if if you if anyone who's listening, you you can look at your website. I know you probably have additional forms coming up. the The election is June second. Mayor, have you gotten your ballot? Well, actually, I got my ballot finally yesterday. Good. So I will be filling it out today. A lot of people have texted me who got this yesterday. There's still people who haven't gotten them. So I'm just going to encourage people to, as soon as you get your ballot, fill it out, take it to the post office or put it in your mailbox. Of course, there's now additional drop-off sites that they're going to be allowing, and they're going to be opening up um, three more or two more um, sites. I think that happened yesterday where people can go and vote. Actually, my old high school, Northwestern High School and Northwest, as well as um, one other location. I have to put those in memory now that they um, added additional sites on the 2nd of June. Well, I've already sent my ballot in. I got, I I think I received it uh, last Saturday. 
filled it out, sent it out on Monday. So I've, I've voted, and I know that there was some concerns there for a while, still concerns that some Baltimore City residents did not have the opportunity, haven't gotten their ballots, but I'm glad to hear that you got yours and that city residents are, are starting to get theirs. That made me a little nervous because it's most important that this election continues, that the state gets it right and the city gets it right, especially for an issue, for an election as crucial as this mayoral election. Oh, no, it is. Yeah. And if people don't get their ballot, they they need to call the Board of Election. So, um, you know, this has been just a different um, process yeah. and we've never experienced it before. Yeah. Well, Mayor Sheila Dixon running for re-election in 2020. The primary is June 2nd. Mail in your ballot. Mayor Dixon, I appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Uh, I appreciate having a, a, a nice, pleasant conversation, which is different from cable news where people are shouting at one another over the issues. And it's just two people talking, even though it's virtually, it's just two people talking about a city that uh, we both love. So thank you so much for coming on this morning. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You bet. And best of luck to you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. It's Ryan. Could you do me a favor? Please consider subscribing to a Minor Detail podcast. The show is listed on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're feeling kind, you can even publish a review of the show. Visit and like us on Facebook.com slash a minor detail and follow us on Twitter at a minor detail. Remember, that's minor with an E. Don't miss the latest podcast episodes. Visit aminordetail.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter. We have a great reach through a minor detail podcast, and we'd love to have you advertise on the show. Email me at ryan at aminordetail.com and let's talk. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.